Hello there, and thanks for listening in to our Die of Matthew study. Die of Matthew is the dive study that began it all. Throughout February of 2019, lives were changed and the scriptures came alive to a group of about 50 people as they dove into the book of Matthew, all 28 chapters in 28 days. It moved at a fast clip, but even with that rigorous pace, it became clear that it was worth pursuing an ongoing ministry based on these studies. This is how Dive Collective began. Our new dive studies will be formatted differently, but the process of inductive study remains the same. So as you listen through the book of Matthew, know that we are waiting to welcome you into our current live dive studies where we engage with our Bible study members and dive in at a manageable pace for study. You can find everything you need to know at divecollective.org under our studies tab. Enjoy your time in Dive Matthew, and we hope you'll join us in real time soon. So welcome to Dive Matthew, where we're going to be doing 28 chapters of Matthew in 28 days. For the first study, you're going to want to download our dive guide at www.divecollective.org in our shop under free downloads. Dive studies are our version of inductive Bible study. This particular study of Matthew was the first one we did back in 2019. I hosted that dive guide in a different format on a different website at the time, but now if you want to join in and see how to do a dive study before committing to join us live, you'll want to go ahead and go to divecollective.org to download and get started. So we're going to go ahead and read through Matthew chapter 23. If you'd like to skip ahead because you've already read the chapter, you can go ahead and do that now. You'll want to join back in at approximately 5 minutes and 30 seconds. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples. The scribes and the Pharisees are seated in the chair of Moses. Therefore, do whatever they tell you and observe it. But don't do what they do because they don't practice what they teach. They tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. They do everything to be seen by others. They enlarge their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels. They love the place of honor at banquets, the front seats in the synagogue, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called rabbi by people. But you are not to be called rabbi because you have one teacher and you are all brothers and sisters. Do not call anyone on earth your father because you have one father who is in heaven. You are not to be called instructors either because you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces for you don't go in and you don't allow those entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to make one convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as fit for hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever takes an oath by the temple, it means nothing, but whoever takes an oath by the gold of the temple is bound by his oath. Blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? Also, whoever takes an oath by the altar, it means nothing, but whoever takes an oath by the gift that is on it is bound by his oath. Blind people, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, the one who takes an oath by the altar takes an oath by it and everything on it. The one who takes an oath by the temple takes an oath by it and by him who dwells in it. And the one who takes an oath by heaven takes an oath by God's throne and by him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, and yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These things should have been done without neglecting the others. Blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but gulp down a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. 
Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside of it may also become clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous, and you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we wouldn't have taken part with them in shedding the prophets' blood. So you testify against yourselves that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your ancestors' sins. Snakes, brood of vipers, how can you escape being condemned to hell? This is why I am sending you prophets, sages, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. So all the righteous blood shed on the earth will be charged to you, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all these things will come on this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, as a hen gathers her chicks under, his, under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay, so a few observations that I want to just jump in with. There are about three main observations. Then I'm going to go from observation to interpretation to application with each of them individually. Starting at the beginning of the chapter, if you go to verse 3, it says, Therefore, do whatever they tell you and observe it, but don't do what they do because they don't practice what they teach. That is a line that I observed, and the interpretation that I got from it was when Jesus says that he came to fulfill the law but not to abolish it, what he's doing here is he's observing the law. He's saying that um, he's observing and affirming the law, saying that what they're teaching you is good and right, but the way that they're teaching it is completely and utterly wrong. And then the rest of the passage is pretty much depictions of all the ways that they're doing it wrong that the things that they're saying are true and he's trying to he's really kind of parsing out the truth from the lie Mm -hmm. so each of those things following it we can kind of pick those apart and see that the law itself was made for good but the way that they're doing it to keep people in bondage and keep people having to do and do and Mm -hmm. do and do and do is the opposite of what it's meant for and so then he sums it up in verse 23 at the very end where he says You've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He's wrapping it all up into one, which is these are the things that I care about, is justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Faithfulness to God, mercy to one another, and treating each other justly. Um, So that's the interpretation. Then the application that we can take from that is one of the things that we can see all throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, is the love for the Word of God, the love for the law. I mean, David talks about how much he loves the law. And so just because Jesus came and he fulfilled the law, and so we're no longer indebted to God forever because Jesus paid that debt, the law is still a beautiful thing that we should know and we should try to observe to whatever degree that we can because it makes our lives better. And we've talked about that before. So the application, again, there is that I talk about it. I've mentioned it a couple of times. When you are walking in the Spirit, you're walking according to God's will. There's such a fine line. Like, walking in the Spirit is, like, 
you're either in the spirit or you're out of the spirit. And so mm-hmm. I can cons- I kind of think about it like a tightrope, <laughs> even though it's not like that, because that sounds like an anxiety ridden thing. But you're either if you're walking in the spirit, you're walking according to God's will. When you're not walking in the spirit, you're usually falling to one side or the other. One side, I kind of illustrate one side as being legalism mm-hmm. and trying to do all of the law for the sake of earning righteousness, mm-hmm. earning favor, earning blessing, earning whatever. And then you can fall to the other side, which I heard called antinomianism, which means that all is grace and you don't have to worry about Mm -hmm. the law at all because it's all been covered in Mm -hmm. Jesus's blood. So we're good. And so that's where, that's what it means to walk, to walk in the spirit means that you're kind of towing that line in between. You're, you're walking according to God's will, knowing that the law doesn't sanctify Mm -hmm. you, but the law is still beautiful. Mm -hmm. And those two, that's a really hard concept to grasp that the law can be beautiful and good. But if you're doing it like the scribes and the Pharisees, it's not good. Mm -hmm. Right. Because the scribes and Pharisees were all on the one side, like you were talking about with the title. They were, they didn't have any of the grace in there that Right. The law, the law needs to be covered in grace for it to be beautiful. I think that's what makes it, that's what makes it beautiful. And so, yes. Yes. This is a great place to start to answer Molly's question that she had a few weeks ago about, and I'm still having a hard time pinning down her exact question, but the feel for the question that I get is how does Jewish heritage fit with Christianity and where does Jesus fit in between that? Because Jesus is this Jewish Messiah that is the gateway to Christianity and a relationship with God, but yet the Jews don't believe in this Jewish Messiah. It's a really vast and broad question. We could go a hundred different directions, not a hundred different directions. There's one direction to go, but it's big. Yeah, Yeah, you can dig so deep into it. But here's, this might be a great launching point for the conversation. If you go down to verse 29 and we make an observation here, my observation from this is where he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we wouldn't have taken part with them in shedding the prophets' blood. So you testify against yourselves that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your ancestors' sins. So what I'm seeing here is that Jesus is talking to the very people who are about to send him to the cross. These people are the same people that are saying, if I had been alive during mm-hmm. the time of the prophets, I would have accepted their words and I would have accepted their truth. So much irony. And I would have been so glad to have them here, yeah. right? And yet, the Christ, the Messiah that they've been waiting for is standing right before them. And if we, interpretation-wise, I'm kind of picturing like this is this is Jesus who all along while he was, was with God at his right hand as he was sending messengers to his people to make them to let them know that that they were loved and yet that they were not getting it right and he was trying to help them get back on track and then they're sending them to their deaths and so Jesus is standing there watching this and now he's among them like in the flesh looking at them face to face and going you you would you say that you would recognize it but I'm standing right here and you clearly mm-hmm. don't recognize it application wise I've heard before Somebody say, if Jesus were here today, the Christians would, Christians would crucify him. You know, that idea mm-hmm. is like so mind boggling. Well, even like we've talked about before on the podcast, I've said, if, if I had been there, I probably would have, re- I feel like I would have rejected him. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's really what, 
That's a great place to start is recognizing the humanity of the people that were there and how our human nature doesn't doesn't necessarily want to recognize God because if we face God if we if they had faced that Jesus was the son of God the Messiah they would have had to admit that they had it all wrong all of their lifelong upbringing everything that they had been taught the way that they had been taught it because this is what Jesus is saying if you go back to what he's saying he's like you're raising up people that are twice as bad as you like everybody that you're raising up they're all wrapped up in the same like trying to do it all in front of people and all for show mm-hmm. rather than doing it for the relationship because there were people in the old testament who kept the law before Jesus and yet still had understood grace mm. like there was still grace in the law recognizing that they were coming in bringing these sacrifices day after day, recognizing that they weren't getting it right. Repentance. Exactly. They were repentant people. They were repenting and needing, Mm. recognizing that they need God. But the Pharisees were not, they weren't seeing their need. There was no repentance. Right. They were telling everyone else to do this and that they they needed to do it to repent of their sins and to cover their sins. But the Pharisees... Had no repentance. And that's what we're saying is that if that's the point that I guess, thanks for bringing me full circle. That's the point I'm trying to make is that if the Pharisees had acknowledged that Jesus was who he was, that would have led to repentance, Mm -hmm. something that they were completely, Mm -hmm. clearly unfamiliar with. Right. And even like how you were saying they were... As teachers of the law, as Pharisees, there could still have been an aspect of repentance in teaching the law, like the mm-hmm. priests in the Old Testament. The, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? They're still, but the Pharisees were, they completely missed it. Yeah. And so because they completely missed it, they were, like it says, bringing up people who were twice as bad. They were passing mm-hmm. that completely missing repentance onto those other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So then the application that I take from that. It's sort of this underlying attitude that I have toward the word and toward Christianity, which is that I might not have it. I might not get it. I think there's sort of this, I think that the Pharisees, where the Pharisees went wrong is that they were the teach. they were the holders of all truth. Mm-hmm. And so there could never be any room for maybe not having it right, right. or maybe missing something. I th- I think that that application-wise, that's sort of what I take from that personally, is that I need to believe what I believe to be true, but always have this underlying openness to the possibility that maybe outside of the gospel, (laughs) I might might be missing something. And and especially as I think about end-time events, I would look back at the Pharisees and how they were so sure they knew they were going to recognize it because they of all of the people, they knew the law and all of the things that they should be expecting. And so they should have seen him coming. Mm -hmm. They should have known that he was standing among them. Mm -hmm. And so this is, and this is where I love what Jesus says then at the very end, Jesus is lamenting over Jerusalem, 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 who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. This is referring back to that passage we were just talking about where the Pharisees thought that they were above being part of that group of people who killed the prophets. He says, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. This, I'm literally looking at this, looking at and thinking this is incredibly profound because Mm -hmm. here we're seeing how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks. How often I wanted, I have the picture of Jesus sitting beside God watching these prophets be Mm -hmm. killed time and time again. And he like, I see here the, 
eternal, the eternity of Jesus or the eternal quality of Jesus, that he was there from the beginning mm. and now he's there standing among them and he's that compassionate God. So I don't know whether this is the question that Molly had, but this is what I want to answer is that when Jesus is referring back to the Jerusalem that killed the prophets, he's talking about Old Testament mm-hmm. um, Jews. And that whole Old Testament is just one long story in which we can see the character of God. So many different characteristics of who God is. But the one that I think is best illustrated here is that now that Jesus is standing among the Jewish people who again are about to crucify him, he still longs for them. Like Mm -hmm. he still wants so badly to nurture them and to be compassionate toward them and to cover them and to draw them close to himself. And he's like in all of his anger, in all of his anger, Junior and his frustration at the end of the day, what he wants is to have a, like, he's just Mm -hmm. desperate to have a relationship with his Jewish people. That is what he longs for, which I think is why Jesus, why we see Jesus coming for the Jews is he's saying like for eternity, from the beginning of time, I have set you apart so that I could write my story on you so that I could write who I am on you so that I could put my fingerprint Mm -hmm. and all of my character on you specifically and over and over and over again you reject you reject you reject you kill my messengers you i mean list the things that they have done against their god that he has relentlessly stayed with them in spite of you know and now we're seeing jesus the man it's sort of like this not a last ditch effort it's because it continues right but in a final last completed work Mm -hmm. to do exactly what He's wanted all along mm-hmm. to make it so that they can just be with him mm-hmm. and just have a relationship with him. So this, I think, is why Jesus came to the Jews first, because he's doing he's putting that final punctuation mark on his relationship with them. Like, you are the ones that I love. You are the ones that I've picked to show my love, my love for the world. Right. His love... God's love is for the entire world because right as soon as Jesus dies and um, ascends into heaven and the spirit is poured out, then the gospel and the good news goes to all of the world. But all of the world doesn't know the history, doesn't necessarily, definitely doesn't know the richness of the history of God's relationship with mankind like the Jews do. Mm-hmm. And so for people like me or um, most Christians... Without the Old Testament, we have no real working knowledge of... Without knowledge of the Old Testament, we don't really get the full picture of God's love for humanity. Sure, we get God's love for us. We can totally grasp. We can't live our lives without a full awareness of our brokenness. Mm -hmm. Like you just... At some point, you get confronted with the fact that you're a totally broken human being and you're in need of a savior. Mm -hmm. So you can fully grasp the gospel and yet still not have a full grasp on... Oh, yeah. God's character toward mankind that he's shown all throughout the Old Testament, mm-hmm. which I feel like is that that's such a gift. I feel like that is it's such a gift to be able to go back and look at his the way that he's worked consistently mm-hmm. throughout time mm-hmm. to reveal all of the different portions of his character. I think, too, even like when I think about how you said God chose the Jewish people to put his fingerprints on, Mm -hmm. to work through them over and over and over to show the world. Like you were Mm -hmm. saying, how much we benefit from that, Mm -hmm. being able to see his character displayed in that way. And there were people 
in the Old Testament that saw God's character through that also, that yes. were brought in. So mm-hmm. even looking at that through time, how, how It was God never used... exclusive. Right. It was right. never exclusive. Anybody who wanted to accept, who anybody who saw it and wanted to yes. accept it was welcomed into yeah. the Jewish community. Yeah. But you can see over and over and over and over and over and over and over again how many people chose not to. Right. That's free will that then goes back to the fall and is a whole different conversation. A whole different conversation. <laughs> it shows me just another aspect of how God understands his people because he made us in this way and he knows that we as people relate to story. We love mm-hmm. stories. And so we look back at this and he chose to write this story so that we could see him in this, just mm-hmm. even the way he chooses to reveal himself to us in yes. such a beautiful way as the story through, of humanity. Yes, through is, direct touch, through metaphor, yeah. through, I mean, just yeah. everywhere. Yeah. And that's one of the parts of his character mm-hmm. is that he loves story and he writes it so well. Mm-hmm. And so if you can look at the story of mankind from the beginning of time, see his character, then you can see... Once you get to know him as a storyteller mm-hmm. and the st- and an author, then yes. you can see him as the storyteller as and an author of our own lives. Yes. And as you see him as an author in our own lives and you can see the way that he was trustworthy in the past, mm-hmm. then you can trust him in the midst of whatever you're in the middle mm-hmm. of, that he will be trustworthy for the end of whatever story you're in the middle of, that you're yeah. either in the middle of the conflict or you're at the climax or maybe you're in the resolution of a whole story right. or maybe you think you're in a, revela- a resolution Resol- and it turns out that he's only beginning a whole new Yeah part of the story he's just a phenomenal story writer and i for me for a long time i think that's how i think that's how i've always related to him as Mm -hmm. sort of just i've sort of related to my myself to him as an art an art form like he's just he's just making an art form out of my life either in the way that he's telling the story or whether he's molding a new creation or that's you know, a potter in the clay. There's so yeah. many illustrations for how he's an artist and how we are masterpieces mm-hmm. in his hands. It's pretty awesome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Dive Matthew. If you enjoyed our version of Inductive Bible Study and want to join our community of people all working on the same book of the Bible together, come check us out at divecollective.org and sign up for one of our current live dive studies. We believe you'll find a welcoming community one where you'll be challenged, inspired, and uplifted. Come and see.